seated. Well, welcome. Welcome to Refinery Church, and specifically welcome to our weekly worship gathering. This is the time every week where we gather as a church body, and we worship through one serving one another. Those who come early to serve and volunteer here, they're worshiping through service. And what we just did, which is worshiping through praise and song, worshiping together through singing um, these songs about God and to God. And finally, we're going to continue in worship through the reading of God's word together. And we're going to be in the book of Malachi tonight. So if you have a Bible with you, I would challenge you, I'd encourage you to grab your Bible and open it with me to the book of Malachi. If you don't have a Bible at all and you'd like one, come talk to me at your service. I'd love to um, get you one or make sure we get you one for next week so you can follow along with us. But like I said, we're in the book of Malachi. So if you have a Bible, open there with me to the book of Malachi. Now, we have been in a series over the last several weeks called Malachi Disputes with God. And this series has been a series where we've seen exactly what that title would tell you, which is God having disputes with his people, the Israelites, during a very specific season in their history. And over the course of the book of Malachi, you see, over, over the whole book, you see six different major disputes that God has with his people. Different, not arguments, but different disputes they have over the course of that book. Now, for our purposes as a church body, we're studying this book for only four weeks during the month of January. So we've condensed it. We're focusing on four of those six major disputes. And so over the last two weeks, this week, and then next week, we are going to be in the book of Malachi looking at these various disputes. Well, the first week of this series, in the first week of January, we saw the very first dispute that occurs in the book of Malachi, which is God and the Israelites, the Israelites asking God, do you love us? Love us? And God saying, yes, of course I love you. And over the first several verses, that's what God provides evidence on, is here is exactly how I have loved you all throughout your history. I have loved you even before your history. I'm a God that is consistent and one of the things I'm consistent in is my love for the chosen people of Israel. That's the first dispute we saw. The very next week, however, we saw a dispute that feels a little bit different, a little bit opposite in a way, which was, although I love you, although me, God, I love you, you don't seem to love me. And so God actually provides them evidence of ways they've despised him. And in that week, we specifically looked at how they had neglected the offerings, the burnt offerings. They, they had given him lazy, lame, sick sacrifices, things that were completely different than what he would have expected and commanded them to do. And so God provides evidence on how they have been lazy and how they have despised him in their actions. Now this week, week three of this series, we're going to jump ahead a little bit to chapter three. So we're going to skip chapter 2 and go to chapter 3 tonight to look at the fourth dispute in the book. It's the third we're looking at, but it's the fourth in total in the book of Malachi. And we're going to read a section of that together tonight. And so if you have, um, have, have that open, open to chapter 3 with me. Now to understand exactly what we're about to read, you need, you need to understand not only the context, which is what we just looked at, but you need to understand the emotional roller coaster the Israelites have been on up to this point. Because yes, we know what happened, but you need to understand how they felt during all of this. It's going to help us understand chapter 3 better. The very beginning of the book of Malachi, the Israelites were here. They were at the top of the mountain. 
The reason for that is they were very prideful. They had this assumption of them of like, oh, God doesn't love us anymore, so we're going to go off and we're going to do our own thing. We're going to go and have fun, do the things that we want to do, do the things that we have always wanted to do that God has commanded us not to do. We're going to go and live the way we want to live and not care what God thinks because he doesn't love us. That's kind of the impression we get. And so they're up here. They're in a pride city. They're just thinking, let's, let's do all, all the things that we want to do. Well, as we saw in the very first few verses, God mellows them out a little bit because he reminds them, no, 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 I do love you. I've always loved you. And so where they start here, they're offered a little bit of humble pie, and they have to eat that, and they mellow out a little bit because they begin to realize we were mistaken. We assumed something about God. We thought God was going to bless us, and he didn't. And because of that, we were prideful. And now we see clear evidence of how that's not true. God does, in fact, love us. And so they, they humble themselves a little bit. They're, they're, they're humbled. And then the remainder of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, we see God provide clear evidence of how not only do they need to be humbled on the misconceptions they had, but they need to be humbled on all the things they did during those misconceptions. And so God, through the remainder of chapter 1 and through all of chapter 2, goes through evidence after evidence after evidence of how they have rebelled against him. As I already mentioned, the first chapter is all about how they rebelled against him by offering him less than what they give their political leaders. But if you look at chapter 2, I'll address quickly what, what is in chapter 2. What you see is not only do the Israelites rebel against God, but they rebel against their families, their wives, and their children. The men of Israel have left their wives. Many of them have divorced their wives and run after women from foreign nations lustfully. And they've completely neglected their families. So not only have they rebelled against God, but they've continued and used that rebellion to then rebel against their own families. And so God, through the first two chapters, points to all of this evidence to how they have completely neglected him. And they've rebelled. When he calls them evil, he means it. They have been despising God. And because of that, they've gone and done evil upon evil upon evil. And so you can see how where you start with pride here, by the end of those two chapters, you've eaten a lot of humble pie. And you're now down here. By, the cha by chapter 3, the Israelites are at a rock-bottom place because they have been given such clear evidence to their rebellion. And I tell you this because the section we're going to read tonight is where God's going to offer one more piece of humble pie, one more piece of evidence to their rebellion, and then he's going to answer a question that you only ask when you're at rock bottom. You don't ask this question when you're at the top. You ask this question when you have no other questions to ask. So we're going to look at that question in just a moment. But here is the section we're reading. It starts in verse 6 of chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 6 and 7 for a moment and then discuss that, uh, that chunk together. Here's what verse 6 says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now, 
On Thursday nights here at Refiner, we have a, a weekly Bible study we do. It's called Cultivate, and it's a time where we get a little bit more intimate with each other in our conversation around the Bible. It's not just one person talking, but it's a collective commu- conversation around a section of Scripture. And every week when we gather, we'll read a chapter together, and then we'll um, kind of break that down that chapter with some prompts. And the prompts just keep us on task. If we get off too far into some weird realm, it'll kind of bring us back into the, the scripture we're reading that week. But two of the main questions we ask every single week of, about the text is what does this text say about God? And what does this text say about man? And more often than not, what we see is every single section of scripture, every single chapter of the Bible says something about God and says something about man. And oftentimes, we see that they're polar opposites. Whatever it says about God, usually, whatever it says about man is opposite of what it says about God. I'll give you an example. This section is a good example. If you read verses 6 and 7, you'll see exactly what I mean. If we were reading this in our Bible study, we would ask that question, well, what does Malachi 3 say about God? And someone would say, well, look at verse 6. It says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Okay, we know something. That's a piece of evidence about who God is. He's consistent. God is a God who is a consistent, has consistent character. He does not change. But what does it say about man? We'll go down to verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. So where God is consistent, man couldn't be further but from consistency. God is up here doing everything consistent. His love is consistent. His character is consistent. His obe- the way he calls us to obedience is consistent. And yet we, or the Israelites here, what does it say? From the days of your fathers, your ancestors, everyone before you, do the same thing you're doing. You turn your back on me. We make an agreement and you break it. We say we're going to do something and you do the opposite. Where God is consistent, man is not. You see the opposite in that? Those two pieces of information tell us something about God and something about man. And those two pieces of evidence point to the last piece of humble pie that God gives the Israelites. Because he says, in in summary, you're disobedient. I've been consistent. I've loved you. The reason you're not consumed right now is because I love you. And because I'm consistent, and I'm not going to destroy you because of my consistent character. But you constantly and always turn your back on me. That is one last piece of humble pie given over to the Israelites. And this last piece is the final breaking point for them to ask a question that they have to ask in order to move forward. And it's what we saw at the end of that verse, verse 7. How shall we return? How shall we return? You only ask that question when you're at your breaking point. And can I say something too? This is a question that all of us as believers at some point have to ask. If you are a born-again believer and you truly believe in Jesus Christ, you have to have asked this question of yourself. Lord, how do I return to you? How do I come back to you? How do I come and find you? Because, Lord, I've done everything I can looking for fulfillment in this world. I've chased after every rabbit hole. I've gone through every little piece of evidence to what could be fun and fulfilling. I've done everything I can to find fulfillment outside of you, and I've found nothing. So, Lord, how do I come back? 
Do you see the nature that has to happen to ask that question? And it's the one the Israelites have here in Malachi 3. Because they are saying, we've done everything we can outside of your statues. We've done everything you, we can to find fulfillment and fun. We've left our wives and our children, and we've chased after women and foreign lands, and we've, we've stopped giving you your, your sacrifices and instead focused on other things, and it's left us empty. And you've shown us how evil we've been, and you've shown us how disobe- disobedient we've been. So, Lord, how do we return? Tonight, we're going to see God's answer to that question, how God responds to the Israelites themselves. Then we're also going to, by the end of this, hopefully see how we answer that question as modern believers. So how do we turn back? How do the Israelites turn back to God? Here is how he responds to them in verse 8. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. God responds very simp- very, in a very simple nature, and in a very strange nature without the context. Here's what God says to them. Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now to understand that answer, we have to understand the context and understand the culture. Because if I were to give you that answer right now, not only would it not make sense, it wouldn't be appropriate to the audience hearing it. It's not the right answer to us. But it was the right answer to them, so we need to understand why. Why did God answer that question this way? And to do that, we need to see the difference between our culture and their culture in one very important way, which is, in America today, whether you like it or not, agree with it or not, there is a separation between church and state good example of that is I am not a politician I'm not elected I'm not, you're not going to see me on the ba- ballot this year I'm not a political leader I'm not a part of the pol- political system of this, of this country or the, of the city or the state church and state are generally separate in our culture and so for us it's hard to understand what's being said here Because to them, their culture was very different. Their culture was basically one of the same. When you see state, church and state, to them, it was basically one thing. Now, yes, we can get into the details. There's a lot of separation there, too. But generally, this was the nation of God, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. There was a lot of overlap. And that overlap is playing out here in this answer. And we have to understand that overlap. What we're seeing is God asking or telling them something based in this system of church and state being one thing. An example of this is in the book of Numbers, chapter 18, verse 24, where we see God give a command to the, what is called the Levitical priest, the priesthood of Israel. He gives them a command that they're not allowed to own land and they're not allowed to take an inheritance. Now, why would God do that? Because God wanted them to only focus on their duty as Levitical priests, as the priest of Israel. But how, if you're a priest and you've been told you can't own land, you can't farm your own land because you don't own any, and you can't take an inheritance, so how do you live? Through the tithes and contributions of the other Israelites. If you want to survive, if you want your priest to do their job, you go and you pay their, their survival. You give them what they need to keep doing their job. God has commanded it, and this was a part of the system in Israel. 
You had to do this. It was a part of your duty as a member of that nation, of, the, of a member of that culture, to support the priest in their responsibilities. And so what we're seeing here, if you remember from the very beginning of this, of this book, when I laid out the whole history of this book, we saw how the Israelites, during this time of separation, they, they felt like God abandoned them, and so they said, whatever, we're going to abandon God too. And they rebelled. But they did not just rebel in some things, they rebelled in all things. And one of them was the tithes and contributions to the Levitical priest. And actually, in that same verse, Numbers 18, 24, you see how the priest had to leave their jobs and go and farm land. They had to stop being priests so they could go and survive. And so the people who are supposed to take care of them spiritually cannot do that because they have to go and focus on their own survival. Do you see the difference? Do you see how this question or this answer makes sense to them? Because what God is trying to say to them is essentially, hey, you abandoned my people. You abandoned me, and you abandoned my priests, and you abandoned your responsibilities, and you're asking, how do we return? The way you return is begin to obey me once again. And one of the ways you can obey me is by paying into the tithes and contributions of the, Levit of the Levitical priest. You want to obey me, obey all of my commands that includes the tithes and contributions to those who need it. Essentially, if I can summarize it, God is asking for obedience. He's asking for obedience of the people of Israel to come back to him and do what he's called them to do. I don't have a good way to transition here, and so I'm not going to try. I want to take a second, or more than a second, and talk about something about these verses that really has nothing to do with my message. My message tonight is on obedience. That's the theme, if you can't gather that already. The theme is obedience. And in a way, what we're about to say is on obedience as well, but I, I need to say this, and, it, and it's very different than what I want to talk about based on this scripture. But at the beginning of this series, I asked a question whether or not you'd ever heard a sermon preached in Malachi. And most of you hadn't. But the one, the, those of you who raised your hand in that moment, I would, have, I would imagine, I'd go out on a limb and say that when you have heard a sermon on Malachi, it's on Malachi 3. Because this section of Scripture is used very frequently in conversation about tithes and offerings. It's the Scripture that pastors generally come to when they want to tell you what it means to give generously to your church. I've heard that sermon preached, and if you've heard a sermon on, on Malachi, I would imagine it's that one. Rarely do I hear people preach other things than Malachi 3, 6 through 12. And so, with that being said, there's a sermon I wanted to preach, and that was a very short summary of it, obedience. But there's also a mini-sermon here that I want to preach as well, that has to do with what this is generally talked, talked about. And as a, as a small church, as a, as a new church, it's an important conversation to have. I don't want to ignore it and just preach what I want to do. So this is my really bad transition into something else for a moment. I want to talk about tithes and offerings based on Malachi chapter 3 and kind of just clear the air on the, the stance we take as a church and, and just what we believe. Because if you've heard a sermon on this, especially with Malachi 3, you'll hear verse 11, where it'll say, this is God talking to the Israelites, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, 
and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And generally when we hear that, it, it says, well, well, you want God to bless you, give your tithe. You want God to bless you, go and give your offerings. And that's not the sermon I want to preach, but I just want to point that out, that that's kind of how it's talked about a lot. But we need to look at the history of the tithe and understand truly what it is, truly how it was used, and come to a conclusion of how it applies today as modern believers in this room right now. And so for that, I want to offer a little bit of history about where the tithe comes from. It's actually in the book of Genesis we see the first instance of a tithe, which just means a tenth, a tenth of something. But in this context, it's offered as a tenth of all of your possessions. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, where Abraham, Father Abraham, gives God a tenth of all he owns. Just at the end of this big moment, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And then a few chapters later, we see it again in the book of Genesis, chapter 28, verse 22, where Jacob does the same thing. This big moment happens, and Jacob comes and gives God a tenth of everything he owns. And so these two instances early on in Scripture give us this norm being set in place of what it means to tithe, giving a tenth. And we see that today in a lot of, a lot of Christian culture. But you might not know, you might know what tithing is, but you might not know that there is more than just that in Scripture, in the Old Testament, when it comes to tithing. In fact, the Israelites were commanded to give three different types of tithe yearly. Three different forms of tithe. And again, remember, this is a system where the government and and the church were very similar. Almost the same thing. And so when I say tithe, it's a tithe commanded by God, but it's also commanded by the government because they're, they're essentially one of the same. God's commands are formed into law. And so here are the three different types of tithe you'll find in the Old Testament, in the Levitical system, the law. The first one is the Levitical tithe, which is what I just referred to with the Levitical priest. And that's found in Leviticus 27, 30 through 32, if you want to go back and look at this later. The Levitical tithe, I've already briefly discussed it, but the, the priests needed, needed a substantial way to survive and do their priestly duties, and so this tithe is put in place to support the priest and their responsibilities. And so you have this overarching Levitical tithe of the people of Israel for the Levitical priest. But there's also another form of tithe that's much different than the priestly tithe, and that's called the festival tithe. And this tithe is found in Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 26. And in this tithe, it was a 10% tithe on all of your produce and one male animal given over to the city of Jerusalem. So every year you could, you could come together and have this, what essentially was this big worship party in the capital. Pretty cool thing. Everyone comes together and worships God, and your tithe, your produce, goes to feeding everyone and supporting this big, long festival of worship of God. And there's one more tithe that's probably the most, the one that was used the most, which is called the poor tithe. And this is found in Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29, where essentially every three years you were commanded to give a tenth of your produce to Jerusalem so they could facilitate the needs of the poor, the widows, the, the needy, the, the um, illegal immigrants, the, the people who've come in, anyone who needs something, this tithe helped facilitate that. 
And so in summary, when you combine all three of those things, it wasn't any longer 10%. The Israelites were actually commanded roughly, um, it's estimated to be about 23% of their annual income went to a tithe or offering commanded by God and facilitated by Jerusalem to support very specific things within their nation. And that's important to note. It's not just this you give and it's used in some way. All three of these have very specific purposes. You see that? It's not just like, oh, here's 23% of my income. Do, do with it what you will. No, all three of them had very specific reasons for being used, for you, for you being given that tithe. Now, with all that being said, it's good to know the history, but then with that history, we have to ask the question, how does it apply today? And as you can see, those things feel a little bit different than what we know generally the tithe to be today. So what's the difference? Well, a good practice for reading scripture, um, just a little lesson on reading scripture, a good practice for reading scripture is if you're going to ask a question and you're going to look at the Old Testament and see a practice that was used, a good metric for whether or not that still applies is to see, well, what did Jesus have to say about it? Did Jesus talk about this topic? And if he did, great, you now know the answer because if Jesus gives you an answer, he's the ultimate authority. He's the new covenant. He leads the new covenant. So let's take a moment and go to the New Testament and see what did Jesus say about tithing. And here's what he says in two different places he says, or talks about tithing. It's in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke. Both of them have similar um, perspectives. Both of them are, are Jesus talking to the religious leaders, and both of them is Jesus calling them out for their heresy, or for their hypocrisy, rather. Here's what he says. It's Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, Jesus makes a similar claim in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 39 through 42, where he says, And the Lord said to him, you, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup, of the end of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the things that are within, and behold, everything is uh, cleansed for you? But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So in both circumstances, in both examples of Jesus talking about tithing specifically, we see a consistent thing coming up. His issue with the hypocrisy and how it was done. The religious leaders prioritizing tithing and not prioritizing the other, what he calls, weightier matters of the law. Little fun fact about this, the, the Pharisees were known for so boastfully coming and giving their tithe that they were, it was very particular to them that they gave exactly the right amount. They didn't want to go one piece over. And so they would, a lot of them would come and they would bring pliers with them or a little, little way to come and just give one piece of every herb and every spice. And they were not going to go one leaf over because they were all about to the law. It was a prideful thing for them to give exactly according to what the law had them to give. Not one piece less, not one piece more. And so you can see where Jesus would have issue with this, because he comes in and says, what are you doing? You're so focused on following the law exactly how it's written that you neglect the things that I actually care about. 
You neglect the weight of your issues. You neglect righteousness and faithfulness. You're neglecting the things that I truly care about. I'm not going to smite you because you gave one less piece of, of dill than you were supposed to. And yet you neglect the things that truly matter. It's why also the char- this comes up in Matthew 6.6 6, when Jesus is talking about praying and fasting. Because he says, what are you doing? Why do you go to the city streets and pray out in front of everybody? It's not because you're praying to me. It's because you're showing off that you pray. Why do you fast? And when you go and fast, you tell everybody, oh, I'm fasting. I'm so hungry. I'm, I've been fasting all week. No, you're doing it for, for prideful reasons. You're not doing this to, to actually do this for me. You're doing it to show off. Why are you tithing? You're not tithing out of generosity. You're tithing to show off. You're tithing to show you're prideful and how you're special and you do exactly what the law says. You hypocrites. That's what Jesus is saying. You're hypocrites for focusing on the very specific details without focusing on what really matters. And you're focusing on the pride of it all. How to show off that you are an elite member of this, of this belief, of this religious belief. That you know you have everything right and yet, as Jesus shows, they have really nothing right. And so with all of that said, the question remains, does the tithe, or is the tithe still in effect today? The question we all really want to know. The short answer is no. The long answer, though, is a lot more complicated. The short answer is no, because as we just saw, the historical example of the tithe, the, the poor tithe, the festival tithe, the Levitical tithe, those systems are not in place anymore. That's what's called the old covenant. We live in the new covenant. These things look different. But the long answer is, it's complicated. Let me, let me explain, because even though Jesus didn't give a 100% clear answer when he was talking to them about tithing, we do see later on in the New Testament an example of tithing being talked about by a religious leader to the early church. And we take a lot about from what we do based on what was done by the early church. These are the, these are the first churches set in place after Christ um, ascended into heaven, and then we read these letters and learn about how we operate as a church today. And the Apostle Paul wrote a lot about giving in his letters to the church in Corinth. One of the sections I really like very clear is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 and 2. And Paul here he writes, now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the church churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now Paul says two things here that are of, of worth noting. Two things that kind of help us to understand how this is, how we operate as a church today. The first one, he says there at the beginning, is that giving should be regular. It should be a consistent practice. And we see this in the first verse. It says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Consistently, Paul is saying you should be giving consistently to, and to be generous consistently to this mission, to the church. But he also makes something clear that I don't want to ignore. That although this giving should be regular, this giving should also be proportionate to the income and possessions you have. That's why he says at the end of that verse, as he may prosper. As he may prosper, meaning if you prosper a lot, you give a lot. If you have a lot left over, you give a lot. 
But if you have a little left over, you give little. Any church or any religious leader that says opposite of that is manipulating you. Because they're trying to say, oh, well, you have little, you just give it all. Just be generous. No, as he may prosper. If you have a little, give little. If you have a lot, give a lot. Give regularly, but as he may prosper. Be obedient, but also be realistic. You have families to feed and people to take care of. Don't be irresponsible. Go to Proverbs and learn about that. The whole book of Proverbs talks about responsibility. Don't be foolish and treat, uh, treat this as, as just whatever. No, you have things to focus on as people. So as he may prosper. That's what Paul is showing here. Two things. Be consistent, be regular in your giving, and also as he may prosper, be proportionate to the income you have. And you might hear that and think, doesn't that just sound like tithing? Yeah, kinda. But remember what Jesus prioritized, the heart behind the issue, the heart behind what you're doing. It wasn't about this rule of the law, exactly the way it's written, do it to the T, the right amount of dill leaves you provide. No, it's the heart behind what you do. If you're gonna give the way the Pharisees gave and, and came in and, and said, hey, everybody in here, I'm about to give my tithe tonight. If you guys can just wait over there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and give my tithe in for a minute. No, that's ridiculous. It's clearly not about God, it's about you. It's about showing off. And Jesus is very clear on that issue. Don't show off. Don't make this about you. Giving is about a heart issue. And so what we see here is a consistent character around Paul that does point, yes, giving should be regular. Yes, giving should be proportionate to your income as he may prosper. But also, it's about the heart behind the issue. What are you doing and why are you doing it? What is the purpose in which you are going about acting? I'll summarize it with this point. It is no longer giving according to the law, but it's giving according to the heart. If you want to summarize it, that's the best way I got. Giving according to the heart. In fact, in the rest of the uh, letters to the church of Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul has a few more points about giving that I'll just slow, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, show you right now. I'm not going to read the scripture. I'm just going to give you the scripture on the screen if you want to take notes and, and look at it later. But here's a few other, other points Paul makes about giving generously. Not tithing, giving. Here's what he says. Giving should be as a result of the grace of God. That's in 2 Corinthians 8.1. Meaning, you recognize the grace of God. We sang a song tonight about that. The grace of God. You recognize the grace of God, and so you give. You recognize what God's done for you, and so you, uh, you give to the church with that understanding in mind. 2 Corinthians, the very next verse, chapter 8, verse 2, also clues us in. So the giving should be done joyfully and cheerfully. Again, that's where we kind of see a separation from the old law as well. Where again, the old law was this law in place, church and state, very similar. You gave no matter what. It was a big deal if you didn't. The tithe was a part of your system. Here it's saying give cheerfully and joyfully. Give because you want to. Not because someone's coming to you and saying, I, I, noticed, I noticed that tithe wasn't in on time last week. What's up with that? No, give joyfully and cheerfully because you want to, because you see the value in it, because you want to be a part of the team and move forward. Another example is giving should be based on your ability. That's in the very next verse as well, chapter 8, verse 3. Giving should be based on your ability, but also sacrificially, meaning that we should all be sacrificing something in order for the kingdom to grow, but also be responsible. Don't be foolish 
And don't do it to show off. Don't be foolish to show off. And finally, the most important point I want to make about this that, that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, giving is out of the love for the Lord. If it's not out of that, then it shouldn't be at all. And understand who's saying that and why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because your responsibilities as members of the body of Christ is not based off my bottom line and not based off Refinery Church, what we do here. Your commands, your disciplines are based on you and God. The love of God. If you have the love of God in your life and you recognize that God loves you and you truly have submitted to that reality, then all of these things should, be, should come easily. And it's not about me coming up here and telling you what percentages to give or how to give. It's about you and God. Do you love God? And are you ready to see his mission move forward? So wh why does this all matter? Let's summarize for a moment and kind of wrap this thing up. Why does it all matter? All of this matters because of what we originally started reading. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. Read that again with me. There's a section where God says something to them that I didn't mention at first, but I want to mention again here. Malachi verse three, or, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, he says to the Israelites, return to me and I will return to you. Did you notice that when we first read it? Return to me and I will return to you. Do you understand what God is saying there? Because what he's telling them is exactly what I've been talking about this whole time. The grace of God and the mercy of God in full display. God, a very consistent character, has very consistent character, has loved his people from the very beginning. And we saw at the, at the, beginning, of this, of the, at the beginning of this series that God loves his people, his Israelites, and God continues to love us today. We've been, excuse me, we've been adopted into that as Gentiles who have come into the faith through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That mercy, that, that, that mercy and love of God is all that matters. And when we see verses like this, I return to me and I will return to you, we can recognize and submit to that mercy and say, Lord, what is going on? I, I don't understand why you give me freedom, why you give me forgiveness. And God says, return to me and I will return to you. Repent and turn away from your sins. And I, because of my son, Jesus Christ, have the ability to bridge that gap between you and me. If you come and you give your life to this and submit yourself to this, then I am there already waiting for you. When you turn around, I'm right there. As born-again Christians, if that's who you are in this room, and I don't know your heart, this is between you and God. Born-again Christians, when you, when you understand that, and you understand the mercy and grace of God, and you understand the forgiveness you've received, and you understand all that God has done for you, Everything about your life should point to wanting others to know that too. Everything. I don't mean some things. I'm not saying this hyperbolically. Everything should be pointing to that. Because you understand something that is so profound. You understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came and died and was resurrected. He conquered death for you. He conquered death. And when he came back, he gave us commands. What was that command? It's the great one. The great command, great, the, to come and to help others know Jesus Christ as well. To go to the nations and spread the gospel to all people. And so when we look at these New Testament guidelines, and we look at what, what God said through Paul to these churches, what we see is the same mission that you and I are on today. 
small groups of Christians, probably the same size as the ones in these rooms. These weren't large churches. Small groups of church of, of people sitting in rooms together, reading these letters from Paul and saying, give generously. Give according to the love of God in your heart. And why was he doing that? Because they understood the Great Commission, to go and reach those who do not yet know Christ with the gospel. And so my point as we close here is that is the heart posture in which we as a church body come together and worship every week. Is we come together and we worship because God deserves worship. And then we leave here and the rest of our weeks is the mission field. When you walk out of these doors and go home, that's the mission field. It might be your home that's the mission field. I don't know. But outside of these doors is the mission field. And when your life is fully on fire for Christ and you fully recognize your need for him and fully recognize what God has done for you, you want others to know that too. And so for us as a church body, why this matters and why Paul took so much time in 1 and 2 Corinthians to talk about it is because that's the mission of the church. God, Christ himself, when he left, he left us a gift. One, he left us the Holy Spirit, which is the gift. But he also left us, left us another gift, that gift is his bride, the church of Jesus Christ, that we get to come together as a body of believers and grow together. We're called Refinery Church for that very reason, because we want to grow together, be sanctified together. We call it refinement, to be refined, to live more like Christ. And when we do that together, it's so that we can go out and be more refined believers, more mature believers of Jesus Christ in our communities, in our schools, in our homes, in our public spaces. Anywhere we meet, anywhere we see people, anywhere we talk to people, we have been refined to look more like Christ, and we want to reach those with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you something? We are way stronger together, and we have way more of an effective chance to save people together. And so when we ask for generosity, when Paul asks for generosity, it's out, out of that heart posture because we are way better and way more effective together that we can do way more to reach this community together than we can, can apart. And so when you come to this church and you call this your church home and you have fully been born again to live more like Christ and you desire that for those around you, then this is where that comes in. To come and believe that this is your mission to give what you can to reach that mission with your time, your resources, your financials, whatever you can to reach that mission. And I'll say this boldly too, that gives you a chance to hold us accountable to it. Understand this, when you buy into this with your time, your resources, and your money, it gives you the chance to say, Caleb, how many people are being saved here? How many baptisms are we actually having? How many people are we actually reaching? Are we actually doing the mission of Christ or are we just focusing on things that don't matter? Because we are a body of believers. Not a body of Caleb, not a body of Refinery Church leadership. No, a body of believers. And we come together and we pull our resources and we reach our community with the gospel. That is our mission. That's my mission and I hope that's your mission too. And I am on fire for it. I am so excited for what we're going to do here this year. I'm so excited to see who's going to walk through these doors this year. And who we're going to reach this year. I'm, just, I'm, I'm already excited hearing stories. I've heard so many stories of people you're talking to and praying with and going out and reaching people in your communities. And I cannot wait to see them come to these doors because they've been talked to and discipled by you. And when they walk through these doors and hear what we're doing here, they're gonna be a part of that discipleship program too. And they're gonna leave and do the same thing. Reach those with the gospel. Do you understand the beauty of this, of this com uh, community? 
I'll end with this. I, I will end with this. We said this last uh, on Thursday at our Bible study. Logan and, and um, Jordan were talking about this, and it stood out to me. We're talking about the law and the difference between a life of the law and a life of the new covenant. The difference is this. This is the way they put it, and I liked it, so I'm going to use it. The difference is this. You have this line. The line is the law. The difference is when, you're, when you fully submit to the law, and that's all you care about, not the relationship with Jesus, but just the law, just getting the right rules done, then your, your life is all about how close I can get to that line. It's the Pharisees. How many pieces of dill do I actually have to give to give my 10%? It's all about you doing exactly to the right T. I'm going to get as close as possible to that line without walking over it. But as Logan said, I loved it, is when you've done that, you're already over the line. You've already missed the mark. But when you're living for Christ, it's how far away can I get from that line? I want to just run towards Him. And when I run towards Christ, I can't, couldn't, be, couldn't be further from that line. And I say this because it comes, to, it comes into this with giving and generosity and a heart of sacrificial living. Because it's all about how far can I run away from that line? Everything I'm doing is pointing towards Christ. And everything I do, every decision I make, is all about reaching those who do not yet know Christ. Because I have been delivered from a life of brokenness and unfulfillment. And I've asked that question, how shall, we, how shall I return? And God gave me a merciful answer. And so if God has given you that merciful answer, all I ask of you is to look inside of your heart and see where is God leading you to do, what, what is God leading you to do, do next? Maybe that's serving and being someone who serves here to reach those who are walking in these doors with, with open arms. Maybe that is generosity. Maybe that is just going out and being a disciple in our community. I don't know. That's between you and God. But let's follow in the footsteps of Christ and actually live a life fully submitted to what Christ has for us. Not be hypocrites like the religious leaders of his day who only focus on the line. Let us not even know where the line is. Let us chase God so far that we don't even know where the line is anymore. Stand with me, if you will. We're gonna move into the last moment of worship for some reflection, for some prayer. If you need the altars to be prayed with, please use them. This is a time for you to worship and respond how you need to respond. I'm going to pray for us, and then you're going to use this time to worship. And I encourage you to worship, because our God is merciful. Our God is good, and he deserves worship. And as we gather, this is what this is for, a worship gathering to worship God. So please, do that with me as we, as we close, but pray with me, if you will.